Good morning. Uh, the Bible reading today comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. I will be reading from the New International Version. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you, richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you very much for that. Well, good morning. Thank you, first and foremost, for coming and uh, being part of church this morning and gathering with the saints and uh, just... Being the family of God, I think it's important for us to do that. And this morning we are continuing our series on church basics. And uh, so today we're going to be looking at the scattered church, what we should actually do once we leave this place. So this is the third week of worship and this will be the final week that we actually look at the topic of worship. So we've spoken about what worship is, then we spoke about what we do as the gathered church. And then this week, in very general terms, is about what we should do as we leave this place and how we should engage in our communities. And I will be speaking in very general terms. So this will be more about those things that have already been read out in Scripture and what they actually mean. I'm not going to actually be speaking on specifics. So before we get into that, let's just pause and pray. Father God, thank you for your presence in this place this morning. We thank you so much, Lord, for Morris and the baptism that we have witnessed and his declaration of faith in you. And now, Lord, we come to hear your voice from your word. Father, will you bring it alive to us? Will you apply it to us? Will you challenge us? Will you encourage us? Father, we want you to speak. So minister to each one as they have need, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So basically, guys, what we should be doing with our lives, how we should worship God and how we live is closed, a cupboard, sorry, in Romans 12, 1 to 2. Everything is contained here. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is what? It is your spiritual worship to do that. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And this is our spiritual act of worship. When we first hear and accept the gospel message and realize we need Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we make that repentance and confession and we are brought back into right relationship with God. The one and only way that can happen is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture is very clear. 
And when we make that step and declaration, for many people, that's as far as they think it needs to go. They think it's all about that foot-in-the-door type faith that unfortunately the church has actually taught historically. But the gospel goes way beyond that. It isn't just about that first step. It is about a lifestyle which is clearly spoken of here in Romans 12. And whenever you come to a passage of scripture, I've said it before, if there's a therefore, you need to ask what it is actually there for. And as I read out that Romans 12 passage, it says, I appeal to you, therefore. Why is that there? And when we look at what Paul has written in the previous 11 chapters, there's this incredible theological teaching. It is teaching all about God and what God is doing and how he's interacted with us and everything like that. And then Paul comes to this point and says, because of everything that God has done, this is how you should live. So when he comes to this passage of scripture and says, therefore, he's saying, built on those previous 11 chapters, this is how you should now live. This is your response to what has already been said and written in this letter. And Paul starts his application by saying that the good news of Jesus is not just about that foot-in-the-door decision. If the gospel is received as it was intended to be, it should transform a person's life. They should be radically and totally changed. He's saying in real terms, until each individual person is living out the theology of God, what we know about him then the gospel has not accomplished its purpose in their life. The gospel message was never about making converts, ever. It was always about making disciples, those who are disciplined and following Jesus each and every day as they should. People with totally transformed lives, willing to put Jesus first in all things. Think about our present state before God right now. If we truly understand who God is and what he has given us in the whole of the gospel message, then we will worship him with our lives. And that worship will be the type of worship that is pleasing to him. When we come to Christ, we are transferred into this new life and we're no longer under the dominion of sin. Is that something worth celebrating? I personally think it is. I think it's absolutely fantastic. When we read in Romans 6.14, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And this means that I'll no longer be controlled by those things that did once control me. And we heard an incredible testimony in the first service, the bit that we got, because he was just so emotional, where he was addicted to drugs and God has brought him out of that. That is incredible. And that sin, the control of drugs, no longer has dominion over him. Will he be tempted? Yeah. Are we tempted by the things that were once vices in our lives? Of course we are. We don't live in a perfect world. It would be great if we did. But the thing is, it is no longer that sin that controls us. We can go to the Lord. We can ask for his strength. We can ask for his forgiveness. And it is him who now has dominion over our lives. And that sin no longer has the hold and control that it once had. Sin no longer has dominion over me. It will still affect us. It will still challenge us. We live in this broken world. But with Jesus' help and Holy Spirit's guidance, that sin is no longer going to rule over me. I will no longer be controlled by those sins. I will no longer think as one who does not know God. I will no longer act like one who does not know God. 
I will shift what I consider to be worth pursuing, worth achieving, worth attaining from what I think is good and worthwhile to what God thinks is good and worthwhile. It's no longer about me. It's about Jesus in me. It would be awesome, wouldn't it? If when we give our lives to Jesus, he just went, great, and we're taken up to heaven. That'd be so good. No more sin, no more pain, no more heartache, no more temptation. But that's not the way he works. And the beautiful thing is, he says to us, you know what? Yes, you're going to face struggles. Yes, those temptations are still going to come. But I want you to be my ambassadors. I want you to be the ones who go and tell the others about this great life that you have in me so that they too can be drawn in the kingdom and they can have this life and life eternal with me. What a privilege we have. We should be excited about that. The plan and message that God has is to use me. Someone who was discarded, someone who had no hope, someone who was put down continuously my entire life. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to use you. It's mind-blowing. And do you think people have come to Christ because of my life? Well, sort of. It's Jesus' life in me. There is nothing I can do to draw someone to Christ, but I can continue to testify to God's goodness and everything he does in my life, and people are drawn to that. And yes, they come to faith. And I've got to tell you, there is nothing more exciting than seeing someone actually get it and give their life to Jesus. Baptism comes close. But when you see someone who suddenly realizes that they're walking the wrong path, wow, and they go from death to life. Can you understand how valuable that is? And Jesus says, you know what, I'm going to use you. This is your commission. I don't have a plan B. Submit to me. And I'll use you for my glory. And so the command that I keep coming back to is the very foundation of what we do. It's the Great Commission. Jesus came and he said, all authority on heaven and earth is given to me. And I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. And I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I want you to, I want you to teach them. Make them observe all things that I have told you. All things that I have commanded you. And you don't have to do it on your own. I'm going to be with you, helping you even to the very end of the age. You believe the gospel message because you heard it from someone. You responded to what they said. And I stand before you as a pastor because I responded to that message, possibly more than once, the truth be known. And God continues to call you. It was not my choice to be a pastor. I thought I'd be an auctioneer for the rest of my life. You can possibly hear it every time I stand up here. I see that hand. Can we have two? Please give your life to Jesus now, if you will. One hand there is up the back. It'll come out. Trust me. But Jesus had other plans. And I went from being an auctioneer to being in Bible college in two weeks. It was mind-blowing for us. We had no intentions of that happening. Pray for my wife. She's long-suffering. It's bad enough that I'm a husband, but then when I do things like this, it gets even more radical. But we are called 
to an incredible work. I just, I just wish we'd just understand how, how incredible it is that God says, you know what, I'm going to use you. This is the most important message creation can ever hear, and you've got it. I'm going to use you. So today, hopefully, we can talk a little bit about what's contained in the passage of Scripture that was read out and just grasp a little bit about how our life has to change in order that people are reached for Jesus. And hopefully what we've said lays the foundation of why we're here. That's the foundation of our faith. And now we'll get into this application that Paul talked about. And God says that me, as a pastor, you, as believers, need to teach everyone all that Jesus commanded. All that Jesus commanded. And I looked up the Greek. Everyone laughs, loves it when a pastor looks up the Greek, don't they? Okay, I love it. <laughs> the all means everything. There is nothing that Jesus has commanded that we shouldn't be submitting to and obeying. We are called to do it all. Will we do it? No. Should we try? Yes. And each and every day as we lay our lives before Jesus, we will become a little bit more like him if we are determined to live our lives for him. So we've got this incredible passage that we read out of Colossians this morning. And I've got to be honest, I would have been really happy if we had read the whole chapter. But, um, you know, that could have been a little bit too long for some people. So what I want you to do, I want you to open your Bibles to Colossians 3, if you will. And uh, if you've got uh, electronic devices, sure, turn them on, go to Colossians 3. And we're just going to skip through some stuff. And the reason why you've got your scriptures open is so that you can check as I speak that what I'm saying is actually what God's word says. I don't want to be misleading people. And uh, I want you to know that what I say is true. So Colossians 3, when we look at verses 1 to 4 in what's contained there in Colossians 3, it lays out pretty clearly that this idea of worshipping God with all of our lives is straight from Scripture. I don't think there's any other way to interpret that. You can't just come to church on Sunday and tick a box and say, I've done my God thing this week. So many people seem to think that that's okay. That is not the way God calls us to live. And also, you can't do your 30-second devotion in the morning and tick the box and say, I've spent time with God, I've understood what it is He wants me to do for this day, so I'm good to go. That is not the way it works. We need to engage in Scripture. Have you ever realised that when we do these wonderful little devotions, and mind you, I'm not saying don't do those devotions at all, but when you've got one line, one little verse, often only 10 words, which is straight from God's word, and then you've got a few hundred words, which is someone's interpretation of that one verse, which is often taken out of context to tell their story, I think you're missing what God could be telling you. And so I want to encourage you, even if you don't engage with scripture, can you please start reading chunks of scripture? You may not think it's good for you, but it's good for your soul. Trust me. And if you have difficulty engaging with God's word, come and talk to me. I always get something out of God's word when I read it. And I tell you, I am not a deeply spiritual person. I wish I was. I'd be able to tell you great things. I'd be able to tell you mysteries of God if I was. But I just engage with God's word. I want to hear from him. So if you have troubles engaging with God's word, come to me. I'll show you something you can do in your Bible, which will help you engage. But we need to engage with God's word. We need to read chunks of scripture and stop doing these little snippets and ticking the box and saying, yep, I'm done for the day. That's absolutely awesome. And it says in these verses that we are to set our minds on the things that are above because we have been raised with Christ. Think about baptism. We put to death the old self. If you like, we take off those old garments and when we rise to new life in Christ, we put on the new garments. We don't go back and get those dirty clothes. 
And so this life we rise to is about thinking heavenly thoughts. It's about having our mindset on the things that are above. Where is Jesus, the one that we call our Lord and Saviour? He is sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for us. And so in the midst of all that we are doing, if we engage with that, if we say, well, Jesus is on high, he wants me to live for him and his kingdom, I'm going to speak with him, I'm going to ask him how together we are going to do this day, he's going to actually speak with God. And because he's interceding with us, he's going to say, God, Charlie's just asked me about this situation and he needs this right at that moment. I'm just going to pour that out upon him. I'm going to give him the words of wisdom that he needs. I'm going to, he's asked for a divine appointment. He has asked that we arrange something that he can step into and speak to. And seriously, I'm going to make one of those appointments. Let's just open his eyes to see the person that he can speak to about us today, God. That's what Jesus is doing for us. And there's many, many people here who are beginning to see that. Alana and I have already run a discipleship course behind the scenes in the church. And these people prayed for divine appointments and they had them on a regular basis. God just did things that were incredible. Jesus week, no divine appointments. <laughs> Speak to Thurindu. He's just been through Jesus week this last week. There's a few others. I think Tim was involved. Who else from the church? Ryan Bengay was also involved. Speak to these people. They'll be able to tell you about the incredible things that God did. It was interesting. Ryan came to a prayer meeting. Oh, sorry, Tim came to a prayer meeting that we had uh, last Monday night. And uh, he said, oh, I've just got this small thing to pray for, you know. And um, well, yeah, we're doing Jesus week. And I was like, small thing. <laughs> and he started talking about how he engaged with these people who are not Christians. You know, most of you sitting here say, well, I don't talk about Jesus because it is so hard to know what to say. Go and talk to Tim. It really wasn't that hard. These people were coming to him and praying to them. You know, the stats say 47% of the people who are unchurched, 47%. That's a big number would read the Bible if we offered to sit down with them. Is that mind-blowing? And we sit here on Sunday and say, I don't know how to engage with people. Perhaps you should knock on your neighbour's door and say, you know what, I'd love to read the Bible with you. I'm not going to Bible bash you or anything like that. Let's just read through the Gospels. And if 47% is true, because I've been assured it is, a huge survey was done. Out of us here, how many have we got here today? 150? Something like that. If we all determined to do that this week and 47% of the people responded positively, we'd have 80, 90 people reading the word who'd never done it before. Okay, my stats are out, sorry. It'd be 70, wouldn't it? Still, 70 people engaging with God's word who have never, ever done it before. Why don't we do it? Man, I was off track there, sorry. My life is laid down, all my aspirations, everything I wanted to do, in order that what I do with my life now brings honour and glory to God. The way I live should show that I worship God. It's that simple. And it's what it means to be a passionate follower of Jesus. That's what we're talking about. The call in these first three verses that we've just looked at is for all of me, all my heart, all my mind, all my life. No choice. You're for God, you're against God. There's no sitting on the fence. And his call is for all of us, for all of him. We either live for him or we oppose him. It really is that simple. And then Paul goes on to lay out what we shouldn't be doing in verses 5 to 11. 
The therefore is here again, and he's pointing back to what we have just discussed. If you have given your life to Jesus and call him your Lord and Saviour, then you've given him your heart, mind and life. Then none of these things that he's about to talk about should be part of your life. It talks about sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness. One of those words I always stumble across. Sexual immorality. He's speaking about adultery, sexual lust, perversion. Impurity, he's speaking about those impure thoughts and actions that are sinful. Passion or lust is that out-of-control desire for worldly things, evil desires. This is speaking about those things you know that you want, but you also know they're wrong, and yet you still want them. Covetousness or greed is idolatry because we worship that instead of worshipping God, those things that we long for and desire more than we desire God. And these things are the things that we did before we came to know Jesus. And I'm guilty. I'll stick my hand up and say that I'm one of those. Elena and I had a five to ten year plan at one stage. When I was a real estate agent and she was a dentist, we were going to have that beautiful home, the one with all the views. I was thinking, urn Budrum. There's a whole story involved in that. And Elena wasn't quite there. But we're talking a couple of million bucks. That was our five-year plan. It's all gone. And I don't even shed one tear about it. It is so much better to know God and his plans and to be found doing what he wants to do. We love having our house open to people and people just coming in and making it their own. We want to share all we have with the people around us. It has been such a transformation for us. We've risen to this new life and what we formerly desired and wanted and Everything is gone. And then he adds to that what we've already said. He says, don't be angry. Put it aside. Put aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Don't lie to one another. And all of these practices we are told to put off, to no longer have a part of our life. And I know that that's been taught from the front here before, so there's no excuse for us. Simply, don't do it. That's what God's word says. So these things I've mentioned and they've been spoken about have been taught and we're all to avoid them as part of our lives. So what are we to do? We finally get to the passage that we actually read. We have to put off our old selves and put on our new selves and our desire should be more and more in line with what Jesus would have for us. We should be becoming more and more like him each and every day. And our act of worship is to honour him with our very lives. So Colossians 3, 12 and 13 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Pretty straightforward words, hey? But I wonder if we understand what is actually being said here. If we've put off our old self and its practices, this is what we're told to put on. And trust me, it doesn't happen instantly. It'd be absolutely awesome again if all our sins were just dealt with straight away. Jesus has dealt with them on the cross, but I live out this life where I'm still in a sinful and broken world. And when I first came to Jesus, um, just prior to coming to Jesus, the fourth word in my language, every sentence was the F-bomb. And Jesus dealt with that miraculously. I gave my life to Christ and it stopped. And I was like, wow, this is so unbelievable that he could do that. And people saw it and people noticed and it was external. But when Jesus refines you, it becomes so much more. 
I thought I was doing pretty good. And Jesus drew a line in the sand. He said, what about your thought processes? What about how you think about those who come against you? What about how you think about those who don't agree with you? What about how you think about people who aren't very nice? That is not the way I think, Charlie. You need to think like me. And so there's this ongoing refinement in our lives. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to submit continuously to him. It's a lifelong journey. And there's this continual refinement to become more and more like him. And so we submit each and every day our sanctification. Lord, here I am. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Use me. And we're told to have compassionate hearts. What's a compassionate heart? We have these wonderful Christian cliches that we throw around and we think we know what they mean. And I think that's the case for a lot of the words that I'm going to share with you now. Compassionate hearts. How would you explain a compassionate heart? What a compassionate heart is, it is a person who is so moved by other people's suffering that they must engage and are compelled to act in order to move them from where they are to a place that is better. And the greatest example of a compassionate heart is that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he is enthroned over his creation. He created us. And he was so moved by our plight and the fact that we couldn't do anything to restore our relationship with God that he stepped down from all of that. And he took on the very nature of man. And he suffered for you and I. That we may be brought back into right relationship with God. It was his compassionate heart that moved him to do that. And he calls us to do the same. I mean, how ridiculous is that? Jesus is so motivated by this crazy love. Oh, someone should write a book about that. But it, is, it really is ridiculous. And I can't comprehend how he could love me like that. I know how bad I was. You don't. You could dig some, do some digging and come up with some terrible stuff. You still won't know the half of it. And yet Jesus loved me so much and he saw that I was useless. I couldn't help myself. And he said, I'm going to step into that space. I'm going to do this for Charlie. And I often tell people that I believe Jesus would have done it if there's just one of us. And they say, you can't quote that from scripture. Funny, there's all that talk about the sheep and the 99 that were saved and the one that wasn't. And Anyway, that's for another service, I suppose. But compassionate hearts... He was so moved that he took action so that he could restore me to relationship. And I was at my worst. It wasn't like I showed some promise or hope. There was nothing there. And he says, you know what, Charlie? I've done that for you. You do it for others. Whoa. And it's not just on me. It's on each and every believer. Jesus says, I did it for you. You do it for others. You are to have compassionate hearts and when we look at a situation we are so often overwhelmed by how complex and large it is can i encourage you do for one what you want to do for the thousand do for one what you want to do for ten thousand do for one what you want to do for a hundred thousand and each of us together will make a difference that will have an impact upon this world and upon our community we need to have compassionate hearts the second thing we're told is to have kindness And kindness is that act of going out of our way to be nice to someone and to show them that we care. 
And one act of kindness can literally change a person's life. Think about that whole pay it forward phenomenon. It was hugely successful. So many people engaged with it because it struck a chord in everyone's life. Everyone saw that a little bit of kindness has a huge impact. It can make a difference on someone's day. And we still see things like that come up on YouTube where someone just does something crazy kind for someone without being called to do so. And the response is incredible. Those things go viral almost instantaneously. And this kindness, it needs to extend to those who are the least kind to us, the least nice to us, the least respectful to us. And I think I've shared with you uh, about one of the young adults in my former church that came to me. She was having huge issues with her boss. I mean, her boss was a dragon. She really was. She did some terrible things to her staff. She didn't respect them for all the work that she put in and things like that. And this girl was beside herself. And uh, the whole conversation's about, well, God's placed you there for a purpose and a reason and everything like that. We went through that. And then I said to her, look, I want you to go. Next time you go and get coffee, I want you to buy a coffee for your boss. And she's like, what? Are you nuts? I said, no. I said, seriously, I want you to buy a coffee for your boss. I was even willing to pay for the coffee. She said, no, there's no need to do that. I'll do it. <laughs> she came back. She's like, Charlie, it was incredible. The coffee was that good? <laughs> this boss almost ended up in tears. No one had ever done anything nice for her. Ever. Four buck cup of coffee transformed their relationship and showed this girl's boss that this girl cared. It doesn't take much. We need to step into this incredibly ugly world and show kindness where no one else is. Next thing's humility. You know, this is about us. Humility recognises that me on my own, without Christ, before him, I'm totally inadequate. And seriously, I'm without dignity. I'm worthless. I, I have nothing I could possibly offer him that would be worthwhile. But we are all created in God's image. And as believers in Christ, we have infinite value. As I said, he's empowered and commissioned us to tell his great story. And that's incredible. And it's this humility that produces gratitude. It's this humility that looks to God and says, because of him, because of all he has done, I am going to humble myself and give up all my stuff and submit to him and his authority. That's what this humility is about. And it's that humility that causes us to submit to authorities who don't deserve to be submitted to. Think about Jesus when he was wrongly accused. And he humbly submitted to those people. He didn't speak against them. And then they made him carry that cross out to Calvary. And they crucified him. He didn't deserve that. But he submitted to God's will so that we may be saved. It was the only way. And Philippians 2, 
3 to 7 lays this out. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, think about this in context of Jesus, count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And he was born in the likeness of man. Jesus Christ, our creator, he gave it all up in order to serve us. And this is the type of humility that we need to demonstrate regardless of our position, status or wealth, if we're living as Jesus would have us to live. We need to step down from all those positions and be willing to serve others. I had an experience uh, when Elena and I flew somewhere. I still can't remember where it was. It must have been Melbourne or something. And I was coming back on the plane and there's a guy on the plane who I knew personally. His name is Reg Rowe. Reg Rowe is actually the founder of Super Cheap Auto. Very, very wealthy man. Very wealthy and Reg Rowe is about 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, he's sitting in economy class on an older Qantas plane, so his knees are up around his ear holes. I've got no idea why he's sitting in economy class. But to me, that showed a little bit of humility for starters. He didn't need to be in first class, even though he could have bought the plane. But that wasn't it. The big thing was, there was this older lady who was struggling to walk out of the plane. And out of the couple of hundred people on that plane who could have helped her, it was Reg Rowe that took her all the way to baggage claim. It was Reg Rowe that helped her. And this man who could have paid someone to do it quite easily, whatever they asked for, didn't even say who he was, didn't even announce his status. He humbly served someone who needed it. And that's what we're called to do. The next thing is meekness. Meekness is so often associated with weakness. And if that's what you think, you're miles wrong. Meekness is an incredible thing. Meekness is, in reality, write this down, it's strength and courage held under control in order to show kindness. Meekness is strength and courage held under control in order to show kindness. And humility is... Sorry, meekness is an attitude of humility towards God and kindness towards people. It's that beautiful response in acknowledging that God is in control of everything in my life. And it's a conscious choice to seek and submit God's authority in all situations. And those who are meek are the people who are able to accept very difficult circumstances, great adversity, and do it knowing that God is still in control. He has never lost his ability to change the situation. And they trust him 100% because they see that what is occurring is part of God's wise and loving purpose for them in their lives at that time. Jesus was considered meek. He faced all those false accusations that we spoke about before. He faced death and he suffered greatly at the hands of his creation. And he did it so that God's will would be done. And we're called to do the same, to submit to God's will. The next thing is patience. This is one of the great attributes of God. He is patient because of his great love. His patience is what holds back his wrath. He could wipe us out. He would be totally justified in doing it. But he is patient with us, and so he doesn't. 
So when we think about patience, think about the sign of the rainbow after the flood. Think about his restorations so many times over of a disobedient Jerusalem and Israel. Think about the sparing of Nineveh. Think about his continued pleading to Jerusalem to return to him. Think about the fact that he holds off Jesus Christ's return so more people can come into the kingdom of God. Our God is patient. And he calls us to be the same. He calls us to be patient in like manner. And we should be willing to endure in the face of opposition. We should be able to accept or tolerate delay. We should be willing to take on problems or suffering without complaining or being annoyed, anxious, irritated, or losing our tempers. The next one is to bear with one another. To bear with means to put up with or to suffer as a result of being in this relationship. So this is basically a call to not expect people to be what I want them to be. We're all broken people. None of us are the same. And I have weaknesses and inadequacies that you don't have. But you have weaknesses, inadequacies that I don't have. And we need to work together as one family to build each other up. I need to help you through your struggles, your burdens, your conflicts and extend grace, compassion kindness humility meekness and patience does any of that sound familiar to each and every person i encounter that is what i'm called to do and then there's this one Whew. man do we need this we have to forgive each other and forgiving each other in its most basic form is giving up my right to hurt you because you hurt me it's giving up my right to get back at you because you did something to me. It's about me being willing to say, I am not going to seek revenge because I forgive you. Forgiveness is wiping the slate clean, not expecting anything in return, but being willing to let it go, to pardon or cancel the dead. And there is heaps of stories in the Bible that says exactly that about forgiveness. You know that uh, I was kicked out of my church when I was much younger as a result of my divorce. And part of that process, the church wrote a few letters. One of the letters was written to me. One of the letters was written to my ex-wife. One of the letters was written to my new church. All of those letters were pretty scathing in what they said. And it painted a pretty condemning picture of what the church was like. And so I would go and tell people about how I'd forgiven the church. I'd have my Bible studies and things like that and just testify to how holy I was because I forgave the church. And I'd always mention that I still had the letters. I had the evidence. And there was one of these ladies sitting in my Bible study one day in my house and she said, Charlie, you've forgiven the church? I said, yeah, sure, yeah, so holy. Why have you got the letters? It's like, oh, well, you see, I've got... Oh. You see, the letters were evidence. The letters proved that what I said was true. The letters condemned those who I said I forgived. So I had a burning ceremony that afternoon. We need to forgive. We need to have those burning ceremonies. If we are dwelling on something historic... It's not God-honouring. It's not doing anything for the church. And we pray a prayer where we pray, forgive us 
as we forgive those who sin against us. You're saying to God, it's okay for you, God, to forgive me the way that I forgive everyone else. And if you are not forgiving people, what does this statement then say? I don't forgive them, Lord, so it's okay for you not to forgive me. Is that the way you read it? And there's this old saying which I, I dearly love. Not forgiving someone is like drinking poison and hoping they die. It doesn't affect them. It affects you. And when we think about what forgiveness means... When we do, it is an incredible act of love, mercy, and grace. Which one's more godly? Forgiving or not forgiving? And if you forgive someone, as hard as that is, God's honor is going to come upon you. God's love is going to pour through you. God's grace is going to be upon you. If you're not forgiving people, seriously, you really need to. I promise you, this is close to the end. Colossians 3.17, let's think about this. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, each and every action, each and every day, make sure you do it for the glory of Christ. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. When we say hallowed be your name, what, what do we mean? Initially, we're saying, God, your name is safe on my lips. I will not use your name in a way that is not dishonorable. It is a name that is so high, the way I say your name is going to be different to any other way I say a name. But it is more than that, because we are adopted daughters and sons of the Most High God. And when the culture wrote the Bible, names were very significant. And if I did something wrong, my father's name was disgraced. And so when we say, hallowed be your name, we're saying, Lord, it is safe for you to call me your son. It is safe for you to call, you, call me your daughter. Because everything I do, I should be able to say in Jesus' name. Is that the life that we're living to honor God? Can we honestly say that we live lives that bring glory to him? And everything we do can be finished with in Jesus' name. Because that's what we should be aiming for. That's what we should be seeking to do. Can I encourage you? Go home. Read through Colossians 3. No, not now. Sit down, please. Read through Colossians 3 when you get home. Spend some time digging through it this week. Pray before you start reading. Ask God to convict you, to challenge you, the things that you need to change in your life so you can be more like Jesus, so that you can live for him each and every day. And then read through that and make some notes. God will speak to you. Can I encourage you again? Please come up, have a chat to me about how I read the Bible. I'd love to help you engage with God's word. Uh, I'm going to hand back to the worship team after I pray. Um, sorry if I went a bit long. I have a tendency to do that sometimes. Let's just pray. Father God, thank you so much for the power of your word. Thank you that you've spoken to us through your message this morning. Lord, will you just encourage and strengthen us to sell ourselves out for you, Lord? May we just realize the incredible gift that you've given us in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may that cause us to respond in a manner that brings honor and glory to you in everything I do in my life. May we realize, Lord, that we live and work and study in communities that are desperate for you. 
They have this hole in their lives, Lord, that can only be filled by you. And Lord, we have the answer. Empower us and strengthen us to step into that gap and to be willing to do all that it takes to draw people to you. We pray this now, Father, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.